Father, we ask that the song that we have sung would indeed be the prayer of our hearts. That as your word is now proclaimed, that you yourself would speak through it. That by your spirit we would have hearts and minds ready to hear what you would say to us. That we would receive your word by faith. And that by your grace we would not only believe but obey your word. We ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4 this morning. Revelation chapter 4. you're turning towards the end of the book, try to cast your mind towards the front and remember the task that Moses was given in the book of Exodus, the task of leading what he soon found were a stiff-necked people of Israel. He was to lead them through the wilderness into the promised land, and Moses was not sure that he was up to the task. During his brief time leading them out of Egypt at this point. He had already seen them grumble, complain, and break God's covenant. How would he continually, faithfully serve the Lord and lead such a people? Moses believed he needed something that would sustain him in the highs and the lows, something lasting that would keep him going as he dealt with Israel. And so in Exodus 33, he called out to God, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And now as we stand on the edge of the year 2022, thinking about all that has been a part of our year in 2021, perhaps facing struggle and difficulty, disappointments, pain, maybe even suffering, This morning I hope that we will be like Moses and seek to draw from the same well of sustaining strength. This morning as we look at Revelation chapters 4 and 5, my hope is that we will behold God's majestic glory in such a way that we will not be able to look away. That we will become so enthralled with Him that our hearts will beat so passionately for Him that we would begin to find sin worthless and wholly unappealing. It is my desire that we walk away with an indelible impression of God's glory that will not only change us, but satisfy us more than anything else this world offers. That's a high task this morning, and that's why we prayed for God's help. And as we begin to think about these two chapters, just by way of an orientation to this book, if you have not read it much or studied it much, we want to remind ourselves that it is written in very vivid, highly symbolic language that is meant to depict both heavenly and earthly realities. It was written to encourage a church that was undergoing severe persecution. And it was through this revelation, this unveiling of Jesus Christ that God intended His people would be able to persevere that they will be able to look past their difficulties to something greater and overcome by faith. That the strength to endure persecution and overcome sin was through beholding the glory of God in 
Christ. And so that's what I want for us this morning. I invite you to stand as we begin reading in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
You may be seated. Chapter 4 opens with a transition from what has come before. In chapter 1, the Spirit filled John and gave him a vision of Christ who speaks like a trumpet blast. And he is commissioned to write down what he is about to see. And the first thing he sees is this glorious picture of the risen Christ with all of the symbology of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, one who is ever living, all wise, the holy King who reigns and judges all things by the power of his word. This risen Christ gives John messages then for seven churches in the surrounding area, churches that were both historic in John's day and also representative of the church in every age. That was chapters 2 and 3. And now, as we begin chapter 4, the vision shifts again. After those things, Jesus speaks again, telling John to come up through a door in heaven. He He is called up so that he might understand God's plans and purposes. And the first image that John sees, the first thing that we want to focus on is the glory of God's throne. The glory of God's throne. The throne room here is the center of the imagery, not only of this vision, but of the entire book. And John tells us of God, of the one seated on the throne. Notice as he uses words like the appearance of and like. John is signaling to us this is not a literal description of God, rather it is a description of what he sees, in other words, of what God is like. Notice he begins by relating that he saw precious stones, and, and some of these, the, the names have kind of changed over time. For example, in John's day, jasper would be white with a kind of clear, brilliant shine to it. We're more familiar with the scar, scarlet corn, uh, carnelian and the, the green emerald, all beautiful in their own right. That would be the envy of any jeweler to have these things in stock. But notice here that, that the, the, the imagery is somewhat mixed because here is a rainbow, and yet this rainbow also is emerald-like. It glows green as it emanates around God's throne. And so we, again, we ask ourselves, well, what is the significance of these things? What, what do they represent? And some people will, will, will try to say that the individual stones and colors represent individual attributes of God. I'm not sure that that's what John is getting at here. I, I think that it's more a general description of what he sees Because there is a failure in language itself to adequately describe God. Think about when you read through the Psalms, all of the metaphors there are for God. The tower, the fortress, the the, the eagle, the, 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 the king, all these things. How do you describe the wisest, holiest, loveliest, most powerful and glorious being in the universe? Words simply fail us. And so what John sees, and and even in terms of uh, of how he conveys what he sees, this dazzling magnificence of God's appearance, there's no words for it. And so he resorts to things like, well, it it was kind of like a carnelian, and this rainbow was was glorious, but it was kind of like green like an emerald. And, And John doesn't stop at God. He goes on to describe the entire throne room like this. He says, surrounding God, there are 24 thrones, and on them, 24 elders. Now, again, there's some... Uh, discrepancy on, on how we understand these 24 elders to be. Some of them have, some people have said that they are representative of God's people between the Old and the New Covenant, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Um, and th- although I think there might be some nuance there, later these elders distinguish themselves from redeemed humanity. They don't say that God has saved us, they say He has saved people. 
and that there's other reasons for this, but I, I think that these elders are angelic beings rather than people. Given their crowns and thrones, they are of a high order of angels who serve the heavenly court and they lead in the heavenly worship of God. And then we're told about these four living creatures. Again, highly symbolic. The lion represents royalty. The ox represents power. The human face represents wisdom. The eagle is meant to display compassion, care, even, even swiftness. So you say, well, that's not the mental picture I get when I think of an eagle. Well, consider that, number one, we are not living in the ancient Near East, and so the imagery may not ring the same to us, but what you may not know is that when eaglets are taught to fly, when they are about to leave the nest, the dad eagle circles below, ready to catch them and bear them back up to the nest should they fall. We actually see this imagery in Exodus when God tells Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That they were not yet ready to stand on their own. They were not ready to be the nation that God wanted them to be. And so God cared for them and God protected them. And then we're told these beings have six wings like the seraphim of Isaiah 6. Beings covered in eyes conveys this idea of seeing everything. They're not omniscient like God who sees down even to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And yet they oversee God's affairs and they observe in great detail all that he is doing in the world. The wings signify speed and power necessary to carry out that will. And then there are the burning seven torches of fire without the seven spirits of God before God's throne. These torches represent the Holy Spirit. He is the one who perfectly and completely gives off the light of God's glory, penetrating hearts, bringing wisdom to God's people, and a consuming flame to the wicked. And, and, and you, you have this idea we're going to talk about in, in a minute of this, the, this sea of glass. You have this, you have this impression that, that John is far off. He's, he's, not, he's not in the midst of it. He, he's standing far off, and he sees all of this spectacular glory coming out. And we need to put ourselves again into this ancient mindset when things like kings and emperors held sway over nations. We get a little bit of it in our modern day if we were to think about uh, world leaders or CEOs. If you were to, to say, uh, you know, hey, I want to talk to, to Elon Musk, well, that's probably not going to happen, right? He has people who have people who have people surrounding him. And you're probably going to hit one of those layers of people and, and not make it to the man himself. You think all the more of the ancient world and the great rulers who had more numerous guards and attendants and counselors filling up their throne room. He didn't just kind of saunter up and say, hey, king, how's the day going? What'd you have for breakfast? It just doesn't happen. And so when we think about such powerful, glorious beings surrounding God's throne, it should tell us something about the power and the authority and the majesty and the glory that belongs to God himself. John keeps going. He talks about the throne room as having flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Apart from nuclear power, the most powerful form of energy known to humanity is that which is unleashed in violent storms. We even saw something of this and the destructive nature of this power in recent weeks. Lightning was not something that was to be harnessed, but something to be feared. It was something you you sought shelter from. And yet it's this kind of untamed power that is now tamed and harnessed by God himself emanating from his throne. And then there is this sea of glass-like crystal that we alluded to earlier. If you're like me, you enjoy a nice day at the beach. 
that the sea is a good experience, but that was not the case so much for the ancient peoples. The ocean did not have nice associations with it. We see this in, even in the Bible in places like Isaiah 57 and the later chapters of Revelation where the sea is depicted and was thought to be a place of churning chaos. It was a realm that produced evil. And yet here, the sea's calm. It's like glass. There, there is no threat at all in God's presence. It is calm, reflecting the radiance of the rainbow and the lightning, signaling that the terrors of sin and wickedness are meaningless in God's presence. God reveals His power such that everything bends to His sovereign will for the safety and the security of His people. Thus, John is given a vision that is meant to convey for him and for us something of the realities of God as the center of the universe. His unparalleled omnipotence as the creator of all things is on display in this wondrous heavenly throne. And that glory demands to be worshipped. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So pause for a minute and ask yourself, how do you think of God this morning? And if you're struggling to articulate that, again, there's something right about that. Because even our best thoughts, even the most accurate truths that we get about God from God in His Word fail to be comprehensive enough. We can know God truly, but we will never know God completely. We cannot fully and completely understand the sheer glory of God. And yet, how we live, how we work, how we worship, how we treat our family says something about how we view God. So reflect on this for a minute. Reflect on your life. If you claim the name of Christ, if you say you believe in God, then how does His glory, how does His power, His honor, His majesty, what He is due because of the worth of His being and character, how is that reflected in your life? Is He seen? as this God of infinite power and holiness, of infinite majesty and authority? Or is he something lesser? Is he a God more on our level? Dare we say a God that we feel like we can control by prayers and bargaining? This morning, stop and ponder the true and living God. The one who receives the full and perfect worship of heaven. And for a moment, consider the depths of our failing to live in light of that glorious God. But then come back with me to the text so that we can also see and begin to grasp the worth of God's Lamb. The worth of God's Lamb. In chapter 5, the focus changes in God's vision. In the, in the midst of this incredible vista of the glories of heaven, he says, He saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The right hand is, of, is of course, the traditional symbol for power and authority. The, the writing on a scroll on the inside and on the back, along with the seven seals, indicates its comprehensiveness and completeness. What we have symbolized before us is the fullness of God's plan. Everything He has decreed for judgment and redemption. 
It is His perfect will ready to be revealed and enacted and brought about according to His perfect time. So imagine, imagine what's going on in John's mind when he hears this mighty angel bellow out, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That, that is, who is worthy to take this scroll from God's hand to, to begin breaking its seals so that the scroll can be unraveled and God's plan, the, the, the fullness of His plan, can be revealed in history? I, I want to see that. The, the, the book ends with a prayer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I, I find myself praying that prayer more and more and more the older I get. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You can imagine John, who has been the closest thing that the earthly Jesus had to a best friend, a, 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 a little brother who followed him and was a disciple, who leaned on his chest at the Lord's at the Last Supper, who saw that, that, that friend crucified, who saw that friend risen from the dead, who heard that friend now as the Lord of all things commission him to go to, to the ends of the earth declaring the gospel, and who he was now in prison for, suffering. You can imagine how much... John wants the plan for the end of ages to come, that Jesus himself would come. And yet when the angel calls out who is worthy, there is silence. There's silence in heaven. We've gone from, 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 from thunder tracks and lightning, from, from bellows of, of worship from the angels to absolute silence when this question has been asked. And we're told in verse 3, it was silent for no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Now we might understand no one on the earth being worthy, but in heaven, all of these majestic angelic beings running around everywhere, all these powerful creatures, these unnumbered myriads of myriads of angels, and yet no one was worthy? Feel the weight of that for a moment. Feel that problem for John and, and for us. If no one is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, God's plan doesn't come about. His purposes will not be fulfilled. Final judgment on sin, death, and the devil will not be realized. Full salvation in the wonder of a new creation with us raised to be with Christ will never be realized. Everything promised and hoped for since the fall never comes about. It's not surprising then that when no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it, John began to weep loudly. It should cause us to pause and take inventory of our heart. Are we so wrapped up in the here and the now? Fixated on the baubles of this world that eternal things have no weight in our hearts? Or like John, can we feel the weight of this dilemma? Can we feel the anguish with him and even, and even begin to weep with him at the thought of God's final purposes not coming about? Thankfully, there's no need to weep. We read in verse 5, One of the angels said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John whirls around. He knows who it is. What does he see? A lion? No. A lamb standing as if slain. That doesn't mean it's a, it's a dead lamb. Rather, it means that, he, that it is a lamb that bears the marks of his crucifixion on his body. He is one who had been slain, but now lives forevermore because he has conquered sin and death. It is Jesus the Christ. 
Notice he has seven horns with seven eyes. We're told these are the seven spirits of God sent unto all the earth. The horns, of course, symbolize power and strength. Jesus is not just gentle and lowly, though he is, and we rejoice in that, but he is also the warrior Messiah who will destroy God's enemies on the last day. The eyes, again, symbolizing the all-seeing nature of the Lamb. And just as with the Father earlier, so now with Jesus, the Spirit is associated with God the Son. We understand that the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son out into the world to carry out God's mission. Seven symbolizes perfection or completeness. And so here, we see John's vision of the Lamb's omnipotence and omniscience being emphasized. Like God the Father Jesus the Lamb is an all-powerful, all-knowing, lamb-like lion who sees. This is who John sees in heaven. And he is the one who is worthy to take the scroll. And as he takes the scroll, as the one who is worthy, all of heaven erupts into worship. They sang a new song, John says. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And notice why. He is worthy to do this. Why he is worthy to receive worship. Why all of heaven stops and bows to him when he approaches the heavenly throne. It's because he has given his own perfect, glorious life to save sinners. As the Lion of Judah, Jesus has defeated God's enemies. How has he done that? By dying on a cross. By dying as the Lamb. Through his own death, he has defeated the evil one, and he has become victorious. It is now worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. This victory through death and resurrection was not simply a byproduct of war, though. Jesus willingly laid down his life for his people, that they might know God. In his book, Through the Valley of the Kwai, former soldier and POW Ernest Gordon tells his recollections, the, the, the memories and the stories of allied POWs in a Japanese prison camp, specifically those working on the Burma Railway during World War II. And he talks about the brutality and the despair that was part of the daily life as soldiers were sick and diseased and overworked. And yet he also talks about the stories of heroism and sacrifice that began making their way through the camp, inspiring hope that they might be able to go on just one more day, one more day, one more day. One story was especially moving. Here's what he writes. The day's work had ended. The tools were being counted as usual. As a party was about to be dismissed, the Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing. He insisted that someone had stolen it to sell in Thailand. Starting up and down before the men, he ranted and denounced them for their wickedness. And most unforgivable of all, their ingratitude to the emperor. As he raved, he worked himself up into a paranoid fury. Screaming in broken English, he demanded that the guilty one step forward and take his punishment. No one moved. The guards' rage reached new heights of violence. All die! All die! He shrieked. To show that he meant what he said, he cocked his rifle, he put it to his shoulder, he looked down the sights, ready to fire at the first man at the end of them. At that moment, a Scottish soldier stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention, and calmly said, I did it. The guard unleashed all his whipped-up hate. He kicked the helpless prisoner and beat him with his fist. Still, the soldier, the soldier stood rigidly to attention, with blood streaming down his face. 
His silence goaded the guard to an excess of rage. Seizing his rifle by the barrel, he lifted it high over his head and with a final howl brought it down on the skull of the soldier who sank limply to the ground and did not move. Although it was perfectly clear that he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, shouldered their tools, and marched back to camp. When the tools were counted again at the guardhouse, no shovel was missing. The guard had miscounted. The soldier who stepped forward had not stolen a shovel. In fact, he was innocent of any wrongdoing that day. Instead, he had given his life for his friends. That's a story that moves us, even impresses us. But it's only a hint of Jesus' sacrifice for us. For he was righteous in every way. Not just on that day, not not just innocent from one sin, but he was innocent of all sins from the moment of his birth. He was the very embodiment of love and holiness. And the people that he died for were not innocent. They were selfish, prideful, idolatrous, rebellious sinners just like you and me. Furthermore, Jesus' sacrifice was no spur-of-the-moment decision, no. From before the foundation of the world, he determined to take on flesh and be the Savior his people needed in obedience to his Father's will. That is the kind of death Christ the Lamb willingly went to, a death he did not deserve to save sinners who did not deserve the salvation they were given. And because of this, all of heaven sings out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Jesus, the lion-like lamb, is worthy of heaven's worship. And he is worthy of our worship as well. You'll notice that at the end of chapter 5, all of heaven and earth All that is in the earth and under the earth and the sea give worship to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so the last thing that we want to consider this morning is the worship of God's people. The worship of God's people. In light of who God is and what the Lamb has done for us, how should we worship? Notice that all these angelic creatures are around the throne worshiping God. Not only do they worship what we're told, verse 8 of chapter 4, they worship day and night. They never cease to worship. They endlessly praise God for His lordship over His creation. These angelic beings have other functions and perform various tasks, as we see throughout this book and throughout redemptive history, but all of them arise from this purpose of eternal worship. They praise Him as creator and redeemer. But notice how it begins. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. If you've been around church for a while, you know that in the Old Testament, in the Bible, when it says, holy, 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 it's like saying good, better, best. He is the holiest of holy people. That word holy relates to not only the idea of moral purity and being set apart from sinful things, but when predicated on God, it means something even deeper. When we see the Bible speak of God as holy, it's almost as if it's an adjective for God himself. It speaks to God's godness. That is his uniqueness as the one being who is set apart from everything else in the universe. Everything that exists was made by God, but is not God. The Lord alone is God, and in that sense, he is the most holy being of them all. In fact, uh, 
commentators and scholars will say that that's, this idea of his holiness stands as the foundation of all of his other attributes. And yet at the same time, those things that are associated with God, in a lesser sense, can also be considered holy. So in the Old Testament, when we think about temple worship, the, those things that were used for the worship, those things that, that were used to offer the sacrifices, those things were set apart so that way the Levites couldn't go home and eat dessert with the same fork they used to, to, to get the food out of the fire. Those things were set apart. They were sanctified. They were made holy to the Lord. Even the Levites themselves were set apart from the rest of the other tribes of Israel and made holy to the Lord. And in Christ, we read in the New Testament, His people have been set apart from the world. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy to the Lord. And yet, unlike a, unlike a tent or a shovel sanctified for use in the temple, we are living beings made in God's image. And so part of what it means to be set apart as holy means that we ought to reflect the one that we've been set apart for. We ought to reflect God's character in the world. And in the mystery of God's providence, if we think about worshiping the Lord, we are both changed into God's likeness through our worship, beholding His glory, and we also display our holiness by our worship lived in our daily lives. So, so what does this worship look like? First, the worship of God's people should be seen in our submission to the Lord. We submit to the Lord. We submit to the Lord. Sometimes our well-intentioned language can go wrong. It's very common to hear people talk about singing as worship. And certainly singing should be and can be worship to the Lord, but worship as an idea, as our calling, is much bigger than mere singing. So even in the context of this service, hearing the scripture read should be done as worship. Listening to and praying with the person praying should be done as worship. Listening to the sermon should be done as worship. But beyond that, the Bible says that all of our individual moments of our life and everything that we do and all that we are, it should be offered to the Lord as worship. It involves both adoration and action in all parts of our life. And notice verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. In ancient Roman society, the lower, lower rulers would gather before Caesar and they would remove their crowns and lay them down before him, demonstrating their loyalty to him. Thus, these angelic elders are proclaiming their loyalty to God. And in doing so, they declare, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is where worship begins, submitting to the Lord as our sovereign creator, acknowledging he is the one who rules over all things, even our lives. So our worship should not involve self-promotion, whining, being troubled by our circumstances, because the Lord is king. He is the one who reigns over all. He is our creator. And yet that kind of submission involves trust. It means living by faith, believing that God is supreme, both in goodness and in glory, and is therefore worthy of our submission before him. It begins by renouncing any effort on our part to secure our life with God. So if we are to truly worship the Lord, 
It begins when we greatly, gratefully receive the Savior that He has provided in Jesus. Because we believe that He is everything that we need to bring us to God. Our worship should be seen when we submit to the Lord, but we should also serve the Lord in worship. Serve the Lord. Throughout this book and the whole Bible, the angelic beings are ready and waiting to serve the Lord. They come and go as He directs them. And when you look at that Old Testament word for worship, it has the same root as the words for work and serve. So, for example, in Exodus, we see that the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Instead of serve, like the ESV and the King James, other translations, the NIV and the CSB has, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may worship me. Two valid translations. The root is the same. And I want to press in on that point because that point because what I want to again emphasize is that worship is not just what takes place when we gather here at 1045 in the morning. For the believer, for the Christian, for the one who bears the name of Christ, all of our life is meant to be lived as worship. And so that means that we are to be serving the Lord. Remember that we have been saved and set apart for good works. Ephesians 2.10, as we await the return of Christ. So as we go about our daily lives, whether that's relating to our neighbors, whether that's being at work uh, uh, under an employer or at home or together at church, we should be asking this question to ourselves as part of our worship, how can I serve those around me? What can I do for them? Knowing that when we serve those around us, we are serving God and giving Him glory in our life. Finally, worshiping as God's people, we should speak of the Lord. We should speak of the Lord. When the angels sing of Jesus, they cry out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ died to secure salvation from all over the globe. In this new covenant, the church is not drawn from any one particular people. The church is made up of every tribe, language, people, and nation. And the church is not done growing. Did you know that? People still get saved all the time. And we rejoice in that. God brings people into his church through the people that are already in the church. As we open our mouths and speak the gospel, we tell of Christ. We tell of the Lamb who was slain for our sins. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter makes this clear. He says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we look at our neighbors and our friends, and we continue to tell them about Jesus, that God might continue to draw his people from all over the world. But we don't stop with those who are easy to reach. We go on to those that are hard to reach. We go on to those, maybe even on our circle of influence, those that are hard-hearted against the gospel. We persevere because everyone needs to hear of the Lamb who was slain. And we think not just in this local context, but globally. How do we get to every tribe and language and people with the gospel? How do we, how do we get to the Ansari of India or the Hui of China? Or the Pashtun of Pakistan? 
or the Sheikh of Bangladesh or the Desfuli of Iran or the more than 4,900 people groups that have little to no gospel. They don't have Christians there. They don't have churches there. There's no one there to tell of the Lamb who was slain for them. What will we do? Who will tell them of Christ? On July 24th, 1731, a church leader in Germany named Count Nicholas Zinzendorf spoke about mission work for the slaves in the Caribbean. There were thousands of people, he said, who would live and die on these islands, never hearing of Jesus. Listening to that talk that day, two men, John Leonard Dober and David Nitschman, decided to go to the Caribbean as gospel missionaries. And everyone around them said, you're crazy. Don't go. Don't go. They said, it's dangerous in the Caribbean. And to work among slaves, people who don't want to be there, people who may be angry, you'll be killed. And how will you survive? How are you going to work? There's no, there's no one sponsoring them, no one giving them money to go. What is your plan? What will you do? And they said, we're not afraid. And to support ourselves, quote, we shall work as slaves among the slaves. Now, that was never allowed by the white slave owners, but that was their plan. We will sell ourselves into slavery so that we can live and work among the slaves and preach the gospel to them, to tell them about Jesus, the lamb who was slain, even for them. What would, what would motivate them to, to that, that kind of commitment to the task? What would motivate them to literally give up everything? Well, we don't have to wonder because as they were boarding the ship and it was moving away from the pier and all of their friends and family were there, one of the men lifted up his hand and said this, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. But loved ones, that should be the motto on all of our hearts. The lamb was slain for us, his people. The lamb gave his life for us. And what is the reward of his suffering? That many, that many might bring glory and honor to his name. That he might receive the worship that he is worthy to receive. So in our daily, moment-by-moment lives of worship, either to God or something else, we should strive to make much of the Lord. As we live by faith in Him, it should be known in our hearts and to those around us that He is receiving glory and honor and power in all that we do and say. In all of our worship, we should declare, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, I hope we believe that this morning. I hope we believe that the Lamb, your Son, is worthy of the worship of our lives. Father, we love the story of baby Jesus. We love your provision of Mary and Joseph, of, of choosing two humble, faithful believers to send, to send your Son into their care. And yet, Father, the story of the manger will not sustain us in the difficult times. For the story of the manger is not the end of the story. 
Father, that baby grew to be a man. He was revealed as your son in the flesh, the eternal God in human form. Who spoke wisely, filled with your spirit, your life-giving words. And in obedience to you, offered his life as an atonement for sin. And now, Father, you have raised him and exalted him as Lord of all things, who will one day judge the world. Father, we see from these two chapters that you and the Lamb are worthy of all the worship of heaven, of all the worship of our lives. Father, we so very often do not give that to you. And yet this is not even less than what you deserve. But it is harmful to us. For when our eyes are fixed on you and on your son Jesus, then we will find our hearts full and satisfied and joyful that will lead us to heights of love and obedience that we would never have thought possible. So Father, we pray that you would forgive us this morning of robbing you of the worship that you deserve and of robbing ourselves of the joy that comes in worshiping you. We pray, God, that you would give us this renewed vision of your glory and that it would be captivating to us. That it would be obvious to all around that you are glorified in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, even as we continue in the few moments of silent prayer, reflecting more and more on this vision from Revelation 4 and 5 in our response to your glory.